Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. God created human beings, he created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. That is Genesis 1, 27 through 26 through 27th, I should say, from the message translation. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Welcome to this 19th bonus episode in our series, What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About All the Things, Trauma and FASD, with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. If you haven't listened to the first 18 episodes in this series, I encourage you to do so. You're going to want to make your way through them, um, and you'll be glad you did because we are tackling topics vital for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. Um, You'll also want to take notes. So when you listen to them, you're going to want to grab a pencil, a notebook, a pen. Um, Even feel free right now to pause this podcast so you can go get something to write with and write on. Then you can listen, you know, press play and listen again, or just listen all the way through. Maybe you're driving or doing something and you can't take notes right now. You're going to want to listen a second time and take notes, I assure you. We've got such great content. You're not going to want to miss a single word. And Dr. Brown takes us pretty deep in these topics. Regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop in your inbox every Monday. We offer a brand new episode. This series with Dr. Brown, these are bonus episodes and we drop them on Fridays. So some weeks you're going to get two podcasts from us, but you'll always have one on Mondays. Um, So if you're not a subscriber yet to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe and hey, even leave a review. When you do, it helps other folks who are searching for podcasts about adoption, about foster care, kinship care, like all the things, it helps them to more easily find us. We kind of pop up on their in their search engine, you know, a little bit higher because we've had subscribers and those who have left reviews. So I hope that you will do that. Um, we've also got some vital resources and upcoming trainings we want to tell you about. So check these out. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And I am thrilled to share with you that I am offering some more FASD specific trainings. Um, There is a free lunch and learn uh, introduction to FASD coming up on Friday, February 10th 
at 1 p.m. Eastern time. It's about 45 minutes of content followed by 15 minutes of Q&A. Um, so if you're just trying to figure out this FASD thing, is this something that, you know, maybe your kids are, um, you know, showing symptoms of, maybe you're not really sure, maybe you just want to learn a little bit about it, I invite you to that um, lunch and learn because it's that that's very helpful. And I'm offering an FA, FASD three-hour deep dive. So it's like the lunch and learn only going deeper. I do um, use the facets neurobehavioral model for that three-hour presentation. So that is coming up on Wednesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. There is a registration fee, a small one, for the three-hour session. Um, and I do provide certificates of completion for whether it's the lunch and learn one hour or the three-hour, you do get a certificate. Um, so to register for either one, and whether it's the free one or the one with, with a registration fee, you have to register because we will send you the Zoom link um, so you can participate in the training. Um, and you would do all of that at our our website, justicefororphansny.org, click on events to register. Um, and we've included, of course, a link in the to the website in the show notes for this episode to make it easy for you to find those things. Now, to our guest, Dr. Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is an FASD trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. It just means he knows all of the things and he's gonna share those things with us. Please welcome back Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared. Hey, Sandra. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Good afternoon uh, to you, too. Grateful to have you back. I know it's a little snowy out my window here in upstate New York. What's the weather like where you are? 27 degrees on. It's been just light flakes this morning. So kind of a heat yeah, wave and, here, actually. <laughs> and you're in, and you're in um, Minnesota, correct? Yep. St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, so you've, you've, you're familiar with the snow and the cold for sure. Definitely, but I like, I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I enjoy upstate New York very much so. So on our last episode of our bonus series here, you explained theory of mind, um, which was not really something I knew by definition, but I think once you unpacked it for us, it was like, oh yeah, I kind of, I get this. So Today, we're going to talk about attachment, which I think many of us adoptive and foster parents know a little bit of something about, especially um, due to the work of the late, great Dr. Karen Purvis, uh, who wrote the book, The Connected Child, which was life-changing for my family. And I remember Dr. Purvis saying, I have this quote from her, I never met a child who could not come to experience dramatic levels of healing. 
And her method of TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, was very much about connection and attachment. Um, But I'm sure, Dr. Brown, that you are going to be able to take us deeper on attachment today and really unpack it for us and share why it's, you know, such an important topic for adoptive and foster parents. So would you begin by just, you know, like defining attachment and explaining why it's so important? Yeah, well, when we think of attachment, think of the, the quality of the relationship you have with your primary caregivers early on in life. But really, attachment begins the moment of conception. So th- there's a lot of research that talks about maternal fetal attachment. So I think we really want to probably start there. When we think of attachment beginning at conception, what was going on during pregnancy? Were things planned out? Was the mother happy and stable and in a healthy, loving relationship? And when things go smooth through pregnancy, in theory, things typically work out better for that unborn child, never 100%. But let's say she's pregnant and she's dealing with trauma during pregnancy. There's something called attachment trauma in utero or really maternal fetal attachment problems. So if you go deep into the weeds in this kind of literature, what are some things to consider that could be a trauma in utero? Unexplained pregnancies are talked about. Sexual assault, where the pregnancy actually resulted because the female got sexually assaulted. Was the mother during pregnancy experiencing some medical-related traumas where maybe she had to get surgery or she had some severe illness that was very traumatic on her? So any kind of trauma she's experiencing, obviously that gets communicated to that unborn child in a lot of ways. It gets inter- We need to be aware of the topic of intergenerational transmissions of trauma epigenetics, what food she eats, what air she breathes. There's a lot of literature on prenatal air air pollution exposure, what kind of quality of water she's drinking. Is she having prenatal care or is she not? Is she using drugs or alcohol or tobacco products during pregnancy? Is she sleep deprived during pregnancy? There's some a few studies that have looked at prenatal sleep deprivation exposure. So what happens if mom is just not getting good sleep through pregnancy? So think about any negative outcomes that the mom's dealing with that can impact the developing child in utero. What happens if mom was dealing with some sort of grief and loss issue? Maybe she lost her spouse. Maybe they were going through a high conflict divorce case. Whatever kind of trauma it is, again, that can be that can impact that developing child in utero. Witnessing community violence has been talked about in this literature. Thinking about maternal guilt or shame. If mom went through pregnancy dealing with high levels of guilt or high levels of shame, there's studies that have looked at that and how that may be a factor in possible poor birth outcomes. Maybe there's not any abuse that she is exposed to directly during pregnancy, but she's really living in a chaotic environment where it's just chaos, loud noises, 
people are just packed into this house. Nobody is getting good sleep. There's just so much stress going on. It could be because of poverty, could be because of homelessness. And then again, thinking about any nutritional deficiencies and what happens if mom was also dealing with some blood sugar dysregulation issues during pregnancy as well. So those are just a few things to consider. By no means is that an all-encompassing list, but that is just a few examples of possible traumas that can happen during pregnancy that can contribute to attachment problems. Again, will it always re cause an attachment problem? Not always, no, because what other protective factors are in place? What happened right after birth? Was the child born into a really calm, loving, stable environment? Or the minute the child was born, was that child taken away from caregivers and thrusted into like child welfare or some sort of institutionalized based setting? When somebody has secure attachment patterns, things are, are well. They grew up, they had all the right attachment, things were going well in utero. Typically, that is a protective factor against a lot of things. We typically have better sleep patterns when we have secure attachment patterns. We're more resilient. We typically do better in school. We're able to function in group and interpersonal dynamics more effectively. So secure attachment patterns is a very good thing. And it is a protective factor against so many things. When we start looking at this through the lens of like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or prenatal drug exposure or kids that have dealt with extensive traumas early on in life or in utero, there is a very high likelihood that that child's attachment patterns have been disrupted in some capacity. The majority of people with FASD, according to the research, have some sort of dysregulated attachment patterns. Being aware of the diagnoses of reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder would be recommended. Those are kind of on the extreme end of things when we're talking about attachment problems in children. But there's many other kinds of disorders where attachment problems are pretty common. I do a lot of work in the area of forensic mental health. A very high, high percentage of people who are in prison for long-term chronic offender kinds of backgrounds have attachment problems. Now, I'm not saying attachment issues are a direct risk factor for criminal behavior, but people who engage in really repeat chronic and serious offending behavior, if you look at their backgrounds, most of the time there's extensive trauma histories. And when there's extensive trauma histories, that can fracture the attachment. When I think of attachment, when it's working well, think of it as the foundation of the house. So you have secure attachment patterns. Think of that as the slab of the house, the concrete of the house, and then you can build things on it. And the house is much easier to build. It's, it's more solid, it's more secure. If somebody has fractured attachment patterns, again, using the, the foundation of the house analogy, there's going to be cracks in it. Maybe it's a little wobbly. Maybe it's not even. So we really want to take that into account when building any intervention around that person. So it is equally important 
if you're going to become trauma informed to become attachment informed i don't know how you separate the two i think they're one and the same i mean if you have severe attachment problems that happened because of some sort of trauma it just didn't happen for no reason it is caused by some form of trauma it could be a neurobiological trauma it could be direct trauma because of child maltreatment it could be caused by neglect it could be nor neurochemical abnormalities that were going on in utero where mom was not getting proper nutrition and prenatal care when you study it at the neurochemical level it's very very important to learn about oxytocin that is a neurohormone a neurochemical and it's been referred to as the cuddle hormone or the love hormone it has a lot to do with attachment i'll stop there for a second sandra and see if you have any thoughts yeah i mean i've learned some of this about you know there's secure attachment there's like you said the dysregulated attachment there's um goodness i'm trying to think of all of the different types of attachment <laughs> i'm lo looking for my notes here and i was like writing everything that you were saying <laughs> um but i remember learning about the different styles of attachment and um you know the, there's the dismissive there's secure dismissive maybe entangled and then unresolved or that's probably the dis, dis, dysregulated but um secure attachment is you know when all of the things went right for the most part right um but it, can you, are there symptoms, like what would be the symptoms or the characteristics of say a child who had dysregulated attachment? They had a bunch of these things going wrong. They had, um, you know, trauma and like that. So like what would, what would be like indicators of um, insecure attachment or dysregulated attachment? Well, it's, it can be really all, all over the map. So just take that into account first of all, but what you might see in some cases is early on in life, for some kids that have severe attachment problems, they might have a really unusual relationship with playing with their toys. It could be inappropriate playing. It could be showing a complete lack of interest in imaginative play or playing with toys or interacting with other kids. Severe attachment problems are sometimes linked to more learning problems where the child just seems to be a few grades behind other kids in some cases. For some kids that have had a long-term history of neglect, you might see some unusual eating patterns, food hoarding issues. It, it could be maybe they don't want to eat at all. You could see lack of eye contact in some cases or unusual eye contact with prolonged staring. It can really be all over the map. Insecure attachment patterns are linked to more sadness, depression, anxiety, sleep problems. It can without a doubt have a negative impact on executive function issues. So people that have really severe impulse control issues or self-regulation deficits might be more likely to have some insecure or problematic attachment patterns as well. They might be very sensitive to rejection as they get older. You could see some learned helplessness, some codependency issues as they get older. You might see some inappropriate sexual behaviors as that individual gets older. It could be some rule following problems. On the extreme end of things, you just might see just really dangerous 
or unusual or cruel kinds of behaviors. That's kind of on the extreme end of things. I don't want to worry people that just because you have fractured attachment problems. I don't have secure attachment patterns. I absolutely have fractured attachment patterns on some level. It is very common in our society. So don't worry if you have some dysregulated attachment patterns. There are plenty of things we can do about it. So those, those could be a few things. I've seen it play out where you might be around someone that has really disrupted attachment patterns and they have these extreme mood swings. Happy. They pull away and withdraw. They're your best friend. They hate you the next minute. It's all over the map. It's crazy making for some people to go through that. That could be a sign of attachment problems. So extreme emotional dysregulation, not being able to stay in our window of tolerance. So having a really hard time managing complex or confusing or scary emotions. We've talked about alexithymia before. There's literature to support the fact that alexithymia traits and attachment problems sometimes co-occur. So a lot of things can co-occur with it. Difficulty with regulating our affects. You might see that emotional lability, roller coaster rides of emotions. They might have a very difficult time verbalizing their mental states. They might have a hard time putting words to their feelings. And that could be a sign. Maybe the child grew up in a home and there was neglect and the child just didn't learn internal mental states. They didn't get a lot of eye contact from parents. They were left to themselves a lot and they didn't have the opportunity to, to learn and grow and develop language and have that model behavior by caregivers. And as they get older, they might have a very difficult time in some cases to communicate their needs to other people, even though they're in distress, they might not know how to ask other people for help. So that could be a factor. You might see higher levels of dysregulation at the somatic level. So it might be higher headaches, stomach pain, sleep issues, just body dysregulation issues. They might want to be your best friend after meeting you for the first minute. And other people with severe attachment problems, it is so hard to get through that wall they have such huge trust issues. You can see it both ways, depending on the individual. And when you study attachment, learn attachment theory, learn about the ACES research, learn about complex and developmental trauma. These are all topics we've talked about in this series. So I would encourage your audience to go back and maybe take a look at some of those recordings because we definitely talked about a lot of those things and built on some of these other topics and the other segments we've done together. Yeah, well, I can just, I mean, just taking notes, you know, feverishly here and just thinking about, you know, my kids and and and, and maybe the kids of, of my listeners, if you're a, an adoptive parent, a foster parent, um, even a kinship caregiver, um, you know, our kids are with us because of some adverse childhood experience, right? I've got one, you know, that lost a parent, um, you know, had a lot of childhood trauma, uh, possible prenatal exposure. I've got kids who were institutionalized in Eastern European orphanages and had lots of deficits, um, as well as prenatal exposure. So, um, you know, a lot of the things that you were describing as kind of symptoms of this overlap with some of the other you know, things that we've discussed, like 
symptoms of um, FASD or symptoms of, uh, you know, prenatal trauma or, you know, childhood trauma. So it's, it's really hard, like, is there a way to figure out what causes what, you know, like the impulse control, um, you know, that's a, that's a common one. Um, executive function problems you listed, um, uh, just a lot, a lot of these things that you, that you were mentioning also, you know, kind of fall under the category of primary symptoms of FASD. So how do we, can we figure out what, you know, what is this symptom coming from? Is it you know, is it, fr- you know, their attachment style or is it because of trauma or is it because of FASD? Like, can we even tell? Does it matter if we know which way it comes, what, what, what's causing it? I have no idea, to be honest with you. That It's not going to, it's, I think it's near impossible to say it's this one symptom that's causing this other symptom. I, we just don't know. Think about the building blocks that are required in utero and early on in life to help children develop appropriately. The building blocks of healthy developmental functioning relate to attachment. So having that secure attachment pattern, having a solid language base. So language development plays a huge role in this. Our ability to understand and interpret social information. So social cognition, theory of mind, empathy, mentalization, are all very, very important. Intellectual functioning capabilities have a lot to do with this. What kind of friends we have growing up? What is our nutritional status? Do we have a mindset of wanting to learn and grow or do we have a temperamental problems? Those are just a few things that can factor into this. So it's not just going to be one. And when you are working, let's say FASD, most of the time, there's several factors going on. We know that everyone with FASD has executive functioning impairments. Most have attachment problems. Most have sensory processing issues. Most have trauma histories. Most have sleep issues. Those are just a few things that are very common among FASD. So it's hard to to cherry pick, it's the sleep issue causing the impulse control issue. Probably that's a layer and attachment's a big, big factor, but it's not the only. So anytime you are working or anytime you're adopting a child or you are in the foster care arena, a foster care parent, as much as you can infuse attachment-based approaches into what you do, that is helping That is a very important thing. We'll talk about some interventions, but if people have a solid attachment base, the research points to the fact that typically we're going to be more resilient against stress. So anytime we can factor in resilience into the discussion, that's a good thing. People with solid attachment bases typically are more empathetic and have more sensitivity for other people. So if you have a child or a teenager who lack sensitivity or empathy for other people, and they have a tendency to laugh at other people when they get hurt, there could be a breakdown there in attachment and empathy and sensitivity and maybe perspective taking. Those might be some interventions to try. People with solid attachment patterns typically have better cognitive functioning capabilities. People with lower cognitive functioning capabilities might have more working memory issues, cognitive inflexibility and disinhibition. These are all things we've talked about in the series. 
sometimes people with lower levels of moral reasoning may have more insecure attachment patterns. On the flip side of that, people with solid attachment patterns may have better moral reasoning and better ethics. It's, again, never going to be 100%. But just pointing out why it's so important to understand the topic of attachment. And no matter if the person had a solid upbringing, continuing to infuse attachment-based approaches is very helpful. And if someone had a very traumatic upbringing, it's equally important, if not more important, to really target attachment and strengthen that as much as humanly possible. Yes, I totally agree with that. And that's, I feel like, you know, like my years of learning from Dr. Purvis that, you know, the connected child stuff, the TBRI stuff, um, some of my listeners will be familiar with Empower to Connect, learning all of those attachment connection building, you know, techniques, that does really, really help. So, for, you know, for myself and for my audience, which, you know, you know, are primarily adoptive and foster parents. Um, Jared, how can we build healthy attachment with our kids who probably came through so many of these adverse circumstances that you were describing that would typically lead to dysregulated attachment, all kinds of attachment problems? Um, how can we build healthy attachment with our kids who came from backgrounds where they, they, they have you know, maybe attachment disorder. Maybe let's start with resilience. So helping build resilience can help people bounce back from stress and trauma and adversity and hardship a lot easier. How do we build resilience in children? Well, getting better sleep is foundational, eating healthy, exercise, all the basics, but focusing too on a learning mindset, reading to the child, Maybe it's working with the school or finding some sort of executive functioning coach or getting that child interested in learning and growing and using one's brain and finding hobbies and skills and interest and just doing positive, healthy things with other positive and healthy people. As much as you can model internal locus of control as that child gets older, that is going to be a good thing. Focusing on improving self-esteem dynamics. So encouragement, motivation, empowerment, really capitalizing and building that child's self-esteem as well as their self-efficacy. Focusing too on teaching that child better self-awareness, self-reflection and self-monitoring. Obviously young kids will have a hard time understanding this just because of the nature of being young, but the more you can model these things, the better off the child's going to be. Obviously, working with professionals who can help and skills workers, social workers, therapists, and so on. Modeling what it means to solve problems effectively. Conflict resolution. If you as a caregiver can model disagreements you're having with other people to that child in a healthy way, that child hopefully is going to pick up on that. If a parent is modeling behavior when something doesn't go their way and they start yelling and screaming and threatening, you can about imagine what that child's absorbing as well. Modeling empathy is very, very important. Empathetic listening, attunement, making sure you're using appropriate eye contact. Empathy can be promoted through perspective taking activities, just sitting and talking rather than being on the screen. Maybe it's watching a movie 
that's age appropriate and talking about like feelings and what that person is feeling. Maybe it's working with like an animal assisted therapist that's been helpful to help promote empathy and also really, really promoting emotional regulation, self-regulation, self-control, the inability to delay gratification. These are all things that can help build up resilience. I think some other things to consider at the maternal fetal attachment lens. So in utero, planning during pregnancy has been talked about working with healthcare providers, early intervention, making maybe you're working with a nutritionist, these kind of things, just taking care of yourself, obviously, during pregnancy, having the appropriate social support, just being aware of any risk factors, warning signs, these kind of things can also be very helpful. I think it's also very, very helpful to work with like a therapist who understands attachment theory. People that use attachment-based approaches typically are going to be using approaches that are strengths-based. So rather than always focusing on the negatives, you're trying to capitalize on the person's strengths and qualities and attributes. Now we wanna obviously identify weaknesses and limitations, but really not make that the focal point and like pointing that out to them because that can contribute to shame. So attachment-based approaches are strengths-based. They're going to be positive. Typically parents that are trained in attachment-based parenting are going to be more enthusiastic. They're going to be very mindful of their voice tone. So they're not going to be like speaking too loud or too soft because some of these kids that have been adopted or into the child welfare system, they had a long history of being yelled and screamed at. So you really want to be aware of triggers. So voice tone and even facial features, some people with attachment problems can really fixate on negative facial features or think the person is being negative in their body language when maybe they're not. At the core of attachment is trauma-informed care and creating environmental stability and safety. So what was what would that look like for caregivers? Structured settings in terms of bedtime routines, playing time when you eat, but you don't want to be overly rigid too, where you can be flexible and adaptable, but you don't want it a free-for-all where the child goes to bed at nine o'clock one night, midnight the next, they sleep until noon one day, they get up at seven the next day. That can be very crazy making for anyone. Part of attachment-based approaches is going to be just kind and patient and sensitive. And we want to be consistent too. The last thing we want to do is one parent is saying one thing and another parent is saying something different. That could actually be a trauma trigger for some kids where it could create more confusion. Some kids with a high trauma history may also be triggered by certain smells, by bright lights, it's really got to individualize it. Just stay curious. I think that's a good approach when the child is having a really unusual reaction. Try to take a step back. Could it have been a trauma trigger? Could that child be in some sort of physical pain or emotional pain that they're not able to articulate? For example, let's, let's give one example. Let's say a child has a huge emotional breakdown. Take a step back. Could that be 
I'm, I'm not saying this is happening, but could it be the child just ate something they're allergic to, and now they're having huge digestive discomfort? These are just things, who knows what's going on? Maybe the child has some sort of food allergy or food intolerance. Just rule out things, stay curious, dig deeper. These are some things to take into account. And if you are going to be a trauma and attachment-based caregiver, utilizing love, compassion, empathy, having good boundaries, you want to treat your child like a child. This is all common sense, but you don't want to put that child in like an adult role, like role reversal. Having appropriate expectations for the child, not expectations that's going to set up that child for failure, but it, taking into account their developmental age rather than a chronological age. I think it's very important for parents who use attachment-based approaches to also utilize approaches that are rooted in coaching and modeling and teaching, not just saying something to the child and expecting they learned it, but actually fact-checking, verifying, demonstrating it, practicing it, and really being aware of the literature too on harsh parenting practices. So we want to avoid harsh parenting practices, to name a few. Can I give a couple more examples of, let, let's say, like group-based interventions? If a child or a teenager ever went to a group, some things to consider through attachment lens. Social skills group, where the, the group is at a similar developmental and social age can be very helpful making sure the facilitator truly understands attachment and if it's FASD, obviously understanding FASD, of course. Finding a play therapist can be very, very, very helpful. Can't stress that enough. Finding somebody that specializes in animal-assisted therapy or equine therapy, a couple cases I consulted on, the individual with FASD, went to equine therapy. It was amazing and fantastic. Art can be very helpful. So working with an art therapist might be helpful because that can help with self-expression. For some of these kids, they may really struggle with communicating their thoughts, wants, needs, especially as it relates to trauma. So art and body-based movements can be very, very helpful. In this literature too, it talks about poetry interventions that might be helpful self-expression activities. So there's a lot of things we can do, but those are just a few things to consider. Yeah, I love, I was, again, you know, feverishly taking notes and it was making me, it was jogging my memory because I, re I remember learning about play. Um, you know, when we play with our kids and we're having fun with our kids, that helps to disarm fear and build trust, which then improves, I, to my understanding, you know, the attachment. Um, you know, would, would you agree with that? Am I on target there? Spot on. There's actually literature that talks about effective parenting practices, infusing humor into it. We want to use humor that's appropriate and age appropriate. But if parents who are more flexible, adaptable, kind of easygoing, and can use humor effectively, without a doubt that can diffuse a situation and it can help that child 
develop deeper bonds with the parent. So that is supported in the research as well, without a doubt. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that you mentioned strengths based because I know with my training with facets, um, you know, that's that's part of the accommodations when we're trying to support individuals with an FASD, um, you know, finding accommodations that will help them be successful and building on their strengths. Um, is key. So, and, and I have to say that in my early days of parenting, you know, way back in 1999, when our first, um, eventually we adopted her, but she came in as a kinship, we didn't have any training on any of this, uh, knew nothing about any of it. Um, and I'll, I'll say that we went about the parenting all wrong. Like we didn't, we didn't know attachment was a thing. We didn't know uh, childhood trauma was, a, I mean, we probably had heard of, you know, you watch the news, you understand that bad things happen to kids, but we didn't really understand that there was a, a way of parenting an individual that, that has experienced childhood trauma, didn't know about prenatal exposure to alcohol, didn't know any of it. So we parented very punitively, like we were parenting our biological children. So it was a lot of that, you know, you get all these opportunities. And um, but if you, you know, you make a mistake, you're going to get punished. There's, you know, corporal punishment, we were we, we did that for a season. Um, you know, and it, none of it worked. And as I've learned over the years and come to understand attachment and TBRI and even FASD, um, you know, none of that was successful. And it all prevented us from building a positive and healthy relationship with some of our kids initially, because we were going about it all wrong. And we weren't doing these, um, you know, we weren't taking we were not trauma informed. So we did not know the things to do to, to, to I spent more time correcting behavior than connecting with my kids and then it's in that connecting that that playfulness that mindfulness um you know that kind loving compassion that's where that's where the attachment begins to happen the healthy attachment and we weren't doing any of that because we didn't know any of that in the beginning um so i really value you know just the list of things that you gave us you know from the strengths based positive enthusiastic um you know, all of those things, you know, structure, um, nurture, all of those things that we can do really does help to um, kind of improve attachment and improve outcomes. Um, any last thoughts on that, Dr. Jared? Well, I would recommend if you have the time, everyone, to listen to all of the segments in this series because it really builds on each other and there's so many moving parts. So I would think that would be a good starting point, finding therapists, skills workers, case managers, social workers who understand these topics because we can't do it alone, getting the basics under control, getting sleep better, eating healthier, moving more, Really being aware of screen time exposure too. I say that all the time, but just monitoring what the person is viewing on the screen as well. And when we're looking at this through like a, a trauma and attachment lens too, just know that if you've adopted a child or from the foster care system, that is a trauma for that child, no matter what, on some level. Maybe they've gotten out of a situation that was horrific and now they're in a much more stable home even if they're in the stable home, they're still dealing with probably some of the after effects of trauma. Will that last forever for them? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. And I think too, when we look at this through the attachment and trauma lens, 
working with someone who truly understands like body-based work, getting the body regulated because if the body is dysregulated, it's hard for the brain to work properly and to take in information and then make sense of it. So getting the body regulated, physiological regulation, just behavioral regulation. And that happens with working with somatic-based approaches, art, music, equine therapy, exercise specialist and nutritionist, getting good sleep, but getting the body under control and calming down is helpful because there is some research to point to the fact that people with severe attachment problems may actually be dealing with more physiological dysregulation in their body and increases in inflammation too at the neurochemical biochemistry level that we just, we can't see. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, taking into consideration the whole the whole body, the whole child, not just, you know, behavior, but all of the parts that you were saying, you know, nutrition is so important. Um, hydration is so important. Sleep, exercise, being able to be creative, all of those things, taking all those things into consideration. Um, I love all of that. And, and, and um, I know we could talk about this forever. Um, but I, I, I do thank you, Dr. Jared, for, for unpacking attachment a little bit more for us, because it's definitely vital. It's, it's relevant to every one of our listeners, um, you know, because they are parents and caregivers. Um, this, this is a big, huge part of it. Um, but there's layers to it, because, you know, some of my kiddos have attachment issues. They also have FASD. Um, but really, again, all of the things that you listed, what we do for that as a parent, are all very similar. You know, we're, I'm, 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 I'm doing strengths based approaches, I'm taking, you know, my child's brain into consideration, I'm paying attention to sleep and nutrition and exercise and, uh, you know, all of those things. Um, and it helps not just one, it's not like sections, right? It, it all kind of overlaps. And all of it works together to hopefully help our kids and and us on this journey too. So um, attachment, a key part uh, to understand. So Dr. Brown, I just thank you again for continuing to educate us on what we need to know as parents and caregivers. Um, Really appreciate all that you are doing. And um, I'm looking forward to our next episode. We're going to discuss how trauma and FASD impacts sluggish cognitive tempo. And I'll confess, I had never heard that phrase before until you brought it up to me. So I'm very much looking forward to our next episode where we unpack that, um, because I'm sure it's another vital topic that we need to know about. So again, Thank you, Dr. Brown, for sharing your expertise with us today. Absolutely. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today for this bonus series, another great episode with Dr. Jared Brown. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, I am learning so much and I have to, it's, it's, I'm really having to like navigate, listening to what he's saying and taking all these notes and then remember I'm the host of the show, so I have to know like the next the question to ask and the next thing to say. It's a little challenging to multitask here because I'm just wanting to soak up 
everything that Dr. Brown is teaching us. So, um, you know, that's why podcasts are great. You can go back and listen and you can listen to the same episode over and over if necessary. Um, So feel free to do that. Um, Go back and listen to I love his idea. Start at the beginning and then just sort of like pound out, you know, every one of these episodes in a row kind of close together because, you know, that way you can really soak it all up because he did have a specific way, uh, like an order of the topics that he wanted us um, to tackle. So he wanted he had an order because they kind of all unpack, they, they overlap and they all fit together. Um, and it's such excellent content. So I really hope that you will um, join us for the next one when we unpack sluggish cognitive tempo. Honestly, folks, I don't even know what that is. I might have to go Google it so I have some sort of intelligence when we do the next episode. I'm sure it's important. We're going to find out about it um, and how it applies to our kids. So make sure you stay tuned. Remember regular um, episodes of this podcast drop on Mondays. These bonus episodes um, drop on Fridays and they all land in the same place. So you have a whole lot of content to listen to, to help you on your parenting journey. Uh, again, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know so that they can listen and be encouraged and equipped too. don't forget to subscribe. Um, and don't forget about our resources, um, that we offer, uh, to help support parents and caregivers struggling along this journey. Um, I've got, all kinds of different uh, workshops, free lunch and learns, which I offer on a monthly basis. I've got some three-hour deep dives into FASD using the FACETS Neural Behavioral Model, working on getting an 18-hour really deep dive. It's the deepest we go with FASD. It's like a six, three-hour workshop. So it's broken up into six sessions, weekly sessions. Lots of other resources as well. So if you go to our website, justicefororphansny.org, you'll be able to find out about all of that on there. Um, So I hope that you do that. I always like to give a big shout out to our Care Portal County sponsors. They are businesses in my local area that help us do what we do to serve you and to serve children and families in crisis. So a big thank you to Tri Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Kosaki, and Cullman Insurance Agency. And hey, be sure to follow Justice for Orphans on Facebook, Instagram. We're also on LinkedIn, they're telling me. Um, and also you can follow me, Sandra Flack. I'm on all of those platforms as well. You can interact with me. And I would love to interact with you. And I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.